Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. We've got a brand new episode for you with Nijay Gupta talking about his much anticipated book, Tell Her Story. So we hope you enjoy this. Thanks so much for all of you who have bothered to write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's really helpful to us and helps people find the podcast and gets it in front of more people. So if you want to share the word, you can do it that way. Or you can take up one of the many other creative ideas that we've put forth in previous episodes. So enjoy this episode, and thanks so much for listening. Thanks to you who support the podcast, and special thanks to our producers as well. Well, hello, OnScript listeners. I'm here today with Dr. Nijay Gupta, who is a professor of New Testament at Northern Seminary. He has written or edited over 21 books, including commentaries on Colossians, Thessalonians, Philippians, and some others. And he has several books helping scholars uh, in their research, how to, learning how to write, getting a sense of the field of New Testament studies. But the book we're talking about today is a book that actually has not come out yet. It's Tell Her Story, How Women Led, Taught, and Ministered in the Early Church with IVP Academic. Well, welcome, Nijay. Thank you. It's good to be back. And when does this book come out officially? It comes out in the middle of March. Okay, so maybe we'll get it. Uh, maybe this will air in the middle of March or somewhere around there. So we'll be right on time. But right now, it's actually early 2021, right? We're way ahead of the curve. Or 2022, late 2022, that's where we're at right now. <laughs> okay, well, since this is technically your third time on OnScript, I'm not going to actually ask you what we typically ask, which is like, how did you get into this? What's your journey into scholarship? But I did have one question that is actually inspired by uh, Michael Gary Scott, if you know him. He was on a documentary in uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania. But I guess the first question that comes to mind when I read a book like this is, where do you, as a man, get off writing a book about women in ministry? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I've actually had people say that to me on Twitter and other places. You know, you need to get out of the way and let women speak on this. Um you know, I, I've actually heard both both arguments. One argument is, you know, we don't need mansplaining. We don't need, you know, men to be writing these things. But then, you know, my wife is a pastor. Many, Most of my students, uh, my wife is a pastor. Most of my students are women. And they actually appreciate a man speaking up on this because sometimes women are seen as biased. I don't, I don't validate that argument. But this right, idea right. that it's self-serving if a woman writes a book on women in the New Testament, or maybe it's not taken seriously. Um, I, I think it's taken seriously. I take it seriously. But, you know, one of the things I say is we need everybody speaking on this. Um, mm -hmm. It's not a woman's issue. See, if it's just women writing on it, it can be perceived by men as women's issue. I want to speak to my audience, the people that read my work. So I think there's actually room at the table for several voices. The issue is, um, you know, an IVP has been spectacular working with them. The, the issue is, is there legitimate partnership in this discussion? So, for example, number one choice for forward was Dr. Beth Allison Barr. 
because I wanted to show that I respect her work. I'm building off her work. I'm partnering with her in this work. Um, I, I, I'm sure you haven't noticed this yet because you know the book hasn't come out. But right now, all the endorsers are women, and that wasn't that wasn't intentional. Um, we'd mm-hmm. asked a bunch of men. We'd asked a bunch of women. Um, I'm connected in well with Christians for Biblical Equality and other groups. So I have these women. So I want to be a voice amongst women rather than kind of a lone ranger. But as I've talked about this with you know some folks at IVP, part of this is a mea culpa, Drew, in the sense that part of my story is I was a hardcore and not hardcore, but I was I, I didn't support women ministry when I started seminary. I wrote my very first systematic theology paper on why women shouldn't be in ministry. Wow. Or women shouldn't be pastors, I suppose. And I went through a journey. And so I talk a little bit about that in the book, but this is kind of uh, an apology in some ways um, for for some of the damage even I've done. So what I would say to people is read my book, but read read Beth Allison Barr, read Cindy Westfall, read Lucy Pepia, read Lynn Kohick. Uh, rediscovering biblical equality. And so I'm, I'm hoping this will stimulate more conversation. Yeah, uh, that's good. And I, you do get a sense of that in the book kind of, you can, you can see how uh, you're, you were twisted and turning from these older conclusions. Uh, and, and I think uh, some of the passages even um, I could tell you were writing because you know what it feels like to not yet be convinced of something going on there. So it's very helpful. It is though a mainly, I mean, it, it is a mea culpa, I guess, uh, as you said, but it's also kind of empirically focused. It's really focused on the data of uh, what what was going on in the first centuries, uh, more specifically, um, but also biblical data uh, starting from Genesis going forward. Um, but when we talk about the biblical data, I hate using the word biblical data because it makes it sound like it's just a commodity. Cold. We talk about what's going on in the biblical literature. Um, you know, there is this this question, like a chicken and egg, it shows, you know, you're showing women's participation in various aspects of what we would call ministry today. Um, but there's obviously people who are going to say, well, yeah, women did things, but it's not, it's not necessarily a good description or it's not, it wasn't the right thing to do, or they were stepping up in a moment where men were failing, but uh, normally that's not the case. Or even things like, you know, Abraham prostitutes out his wife twice in order to save his own life, right? So the description doesn't necessarily equal prescription. So how do you wrestle with that tension? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, what I didn't want to do is create a rose-colored, you know, glasses perspective where I just see the Bible as fully supporting women in terms of empowering them and, you know, all this stuff. Um, I tried to be honest in the book that um, thing, you know, the ancient patriarchal world was not good for women and that it's a good thing that women can vote today and it's a good thing that women can sue and have rights and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Drew, you know that, you know, when you asked me to write for the biblical world of gender, um, this little book with Cascade, um, the first thing I wanted to do was write on um, whether or not early Christianity respected uh, women slaves. And I, I intentionally wanted to, to make sure the answer to that question was ambiguous <laughs> because I didn't want to come mm-hmm. across as apologetic. I think sometimes I get accused of that in my, in, my, um, in my work because I am a Christian. I do believe the Bible is the word of God, but I also want intellectual honesty. I want to be able to call a spade a spade. 
And um, going back to that, I'm glad you noticed that I was trying to approach the book in a new way by focusing more on history than on kind of doctrinal debates. I did that because I kind of feel like we need Mm -hmm. a reset. Um, You know, we ask these questions that actually are more modern questions and we impose them on the Bible like um, women can't be, you know, can women be pastors? Um, and the joke I like to right. use with my seminary students is, number one, there were no pastors in the first century. Number two, there were no sermons. So when you say, can a woman preach? And, you know, and so forth. I, I, now, at the end of the day, we can make the argument, yes, there were elders who, you know, and there was uh, shepherding. You know, we can get it a different way, but I think we have to do a reset. And so what part of what I try to do in the book is say, uh what was the leadership structure like? What, what uh, How much diversity was there in terms of how it looks in Philippi versus Corinth? Um, and, and Drew, really the big, you know, the big punchline I use for the book is we ask, what can women do and not do? But when we look at the actual Bible, women are everywhere and they're doing everything. You know, you, you know I know you're an Old Testament uh, person, so I start the book off with Deborah because I feel like she's a great first conversation to have when people say, but women shouldn't be lead pastors. Women shouldn't be elders because they're not as good at that kind of stuff. That's even though people don't like to say that, that's kind of where they land Mm -hmm. is men are just better. And I think what a risk God takes putting Deborah in, in the pilot's chair in one of the darkest times of Israel's history where they're, you know, they don't have good leadership. What a, what, what a risk if that were true <laughs> that God was taking. Yeah. And uh, even with Deborah, I mean, I, when I teach it, I stop even before you get to the Barack conversation and say like, like, we don't need anything past this. We already have this issue of a woman who's sitting under a tree so named for her because that's yeah. where she adjudicates the Torah. Right. Uh, and so there's a presumed knowledge of the Torah at a certain level and that she can work through legal issues with people and uh, doing the work that 70 elders were called to do. You've already got something that's like a little bit out of the box from the caricatures of the text. Um, and maybe I want to stop right here and just ask kind of theologically uh, big picture. Like, like, would you make a hard and fast distinction and say, like, look, if you're the Catholic Church or you're some denomination that just says we want women involved in ministry, but we're not gonna we're not gonna put them in that ultimate position of responsibility for the church or whatever. We're gonna reserve that for males. Is you know, just you personally, is your position more well, yeah, they just have to absolutely change, or there's room for a plurality on this and the issue is more uh, excising a women from ministry. Man, you're total. going straight for the hard questions. That that's a tough one. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I would say um, you know, first of all, I think tone is important. Um, and when we go on social media, I mean, it's easy to devolve into um, accusation and hostility and demonization and, hey, this group is evil, this group is evil. I've learned that over time that that feels good, but it's not actually an effective way to build bridges and have healthy conversations. Um, so what I would say is, um, is it like inherently evil or whatever? Um, I would say it is, it is limiting. It is limiting the people of God. Um, it's holding them back. 
And, um, you know, I don't, I, I guess, um, I don't, I wouldn't put myself in the position of making pronouncements, but I would say is if I were consulting <laughs> with the Catholic church, if the Pope called me up, right. I would say, right. okay, maybe your ecclesiology is not going to change, but you know, let's look at these texts, see what women do and, and push as far as we can to giving women voice, uh, allowing women to exercise gifts of leadership. Um, you know, for example, when I was I don't know. This is a long time ago, so I hope I'm not getting anybody in trouble. But, you know, I went to a, a PCA church um, in seminary, and my wife and I just gravitated more towards a egalitarian position or over by the end of seminary. And we were going to this PCA church, and we kind of ha- wanted to have some conversations with the pastor about whether we should continue going there. And and he basically said, without changing the doctrine, we're going we're gonna to push those boundaries as far as we possibly can. So, I think that's happening in some groups where they recognize, okay, we have mm-hmm. these doctrinal positions. We're going to push the limits. Like, you know, this woman's going to get up and give a testimony. <laughs> you know, I mean, there. I see that happening. You know, is that a great big picture solution? I don't know, but you know, you got to work with where people are at. I get messages over social media, private messages, where people say, "Should I leave my church?" And then, you know, I'm kind of ambivalent about mm-hmm. that because, you know, this is a pastor who asked me, "Should he leave his church?" Because He's kind of become egalitarian. I said, you know, I don't, I don't tell people what to do. I just say, if you feel like, okay, I got to take a stand and leave. But if you feel like I can exercise agency from the inside in my community, I think there is a place for that. Yeah. No, I think that's a really helpful. I, I mean, I think it's helpful to hear that because some people, I know some people will say, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into this book because I kind of already know the arguments and I want and I have to say, like, I know lots of the arguments. I've read lots of things and I found this to be a unique perspective and particularly helpful, uh, even my, in my own thinking on the topic. Um, so let, let's get into a, a, a few topics. Um, and we could talk about, uh, Junia, which is a popular conversation starter with a lot of people. Uh, can you talk really quickly for those who don't know about the shift in how Junia was viewed and, and why that's important and the distinct, uh, background of Junia that you highlight is a possibility that is worth thinking about? Sure. If you pull out your, you know, 1980s NASB or, you know, I think even the King James. You're going to see in Romans 16, 7, the name Junias with an S. So it'll say, um, greet Andronicus and Junias, my kinsmen, blah, blah, blah. And what that means is, a lot of people don't know this, but the, the S on Junias signals that it's a man. And so a lot of translations from English translation for the tw- 20th century, you know, early, middle 20th century will have that. And if you open up a Bible translation now, especially, you know, uh, like NIV or NRSV, it'll say Junia. And and so just to listeners, that signals it's a woman. So there's been this question over the last century or so, is this a man or a woman? Um, because there is kind of some ambiguity in the Greek text uh, on that. But um, there's a scholar named Eldon Epp uh, who was writing, I think, in the late 90s. And he actually revealed that there was kind of an intentional corruption of the translation tradition starting in the medieval period. Why is this an issue? Because it appears that these people are called apostles. They were prominent among the apostles. That's a controversy in itself. We could talk about that later. But um, sometime in the medieval period, translators, scholars concluded, okay, this couldn't, Paul couldn't have said this about a woman. 
So it must be a man. So kind of from then on, maybe the 13th century, the name was changed to a male name, even though uh, the name Junia is a female name. So it was changed from Junia to Junias. Thank, thanks to scholars like Bernadette Bruton, Eldon Epp, and others, this has been recovered, that this is a woman. And one of the ways, Drew, that we know this is patristic testimony. So we're talking about writers, Christian writers from the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, people who are close to the biblical period, the apostolic period, people who are what we call helophones. They're writing in Greek, so their Greek is pretty good. And <laughs> yeah, I, You have to explain helophone because somebody hears hella anything telephone. today. Yeah, they, hella. Yeah, they're, they're hella <laughs> they're good They're hella real. <laughs> <laughs> helophone means that Greek is their first language. They speak right. Greek. Um, and so you have, you know, these uh, writers like Chrysostom, Origen, uh, who um, who take for granted, most of them, uh, well, the, all of them, I think, take for granted it's a woman, and most of them take for granted that she's an apostle. Exactly what that means, we can talk about. But, um, you know, I think actually her identity was buried for hundreds of years, only to be fully recovered in the last, I'd say, about 30, 40 years. And just to be clear, when we say it was recovered, uh, or we can see in the in the medieval period the shift in how they're, maybe even the, the new spelling of the name, this is all manuscript evidence, correct? Yeah, yeah. Copies and copies of Romans uh, in different languages. But once we start to see an emerge in English, we see the male name, even though if we go back to the Greek copies uh, and the patristic testimony of second, third, fourth century. Um, nobody was saying this is a guy named Junius or Junianus. Some scholars say the, the kind of full name. Nope. Nobody really says that. So because of the overwhelming testimony of that early period, and then what we've inherited from the medieval period, especially in English, you know, later medieval period, um, it, it seems like there was some kind of corruption, and and now, now that we know better. And for those playing along at home who has their Nestle Alone Twenty Eight open or Twenty Seven, will they see this in the uh, the apparatus? Not a, not really, because um, uh, <laughs> this gets really nerdy. But the technical <laughs> apparatus really follows as many early manuscripts as you can. All the manuscripts, all the Greek manuscripts say essentially the same thing. There might be actually a change of name to Julia because Julia is a mm. popular female name, but you're not going to see a change of name to a male name because there was no male name. We're, it's actually a conjecture that there's a male name named Junianus. Oh, uh, we're going real deep, deep, deep yeah, uh, no, I love it. Greek manuscripts here. This um, is the podcast to do that on. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so the apparatus isn't going to tell you really anything. I would say if you want to, to follow up on this, read Eldon Epps' book. I can't remember the name of it, but EPP is his last name. Um, yeah, you're not going to see that there. Um, Junia is a widely attested female name in Greek in that time. Junias or Junianus is not attested at all. So mm. it's actually a fabrication. It's a guess. Okay, there might be a name like this. Um, so it's as a guess, it just loses out to the fact that Junia is a female name. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, so one of the things that you try to show in this book is that um, that female leaders were noticed by the early church, as you just said, with Junius. Um, but uh, with Phoebe, I thought the discussion of the, the actual manuscript, the paratext and, and the manuscript, uh, how that 
how that shows us that Phoebe uh, had this special role to play, I guess, in the delivery of Romans. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Sorry, I don't, I'm not going to excavate the whole book, but I, there are some tidbits here that I think are so good. No, this is fascinating because there's been this conversation going on the last... Okay, so let's start a little bit earlier in kind of modern history with Mike Bird. Uh, and, and Mike, uh, you know, Mike's a good friend of mine, Australian, teaches uh, at Ridley Melbourne. And he's kind of gone through a change of mind on these issues about women. And he said before, and I think a few different places, that Romans 16 actually played a role in that. Kind of mm. along the lines of what I'm arguing in my book, we could talk about gender roles, but then when we see what women actually do, they're on the front lines of ministry. Um, so we didn't mention this about Junia, but she went to prison for ministry. Um, and that's that's a pretty serious thing. She's not playing behind the scene roles in ministries. He's actually out front getting in trouble with the authorities. Okay, Phoebe, mm. manuscripts, um, as they're copied, sometimes people will put in annotations uh, or little marginal notes um, in a manuscript to, for comprehension. So for example, we think the original versions of the Gospels didn't have authorial titles. Mm -hmm. So the Gospel of Mark didn't start out the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's, you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there we have this kata markon in Greek, mm -hmm. which means according to Mark, that may have actually been a note added to the gospel. The scholars disabate, disagree about that, but th that may have been a note added as several gospels were written. We need to differentiate. This is the Mark one. Okay. So with Romans, we actually see sometimes subscriptions or, uh, postscriptions. These are little annotations at the beginning or end of a document that adds some information. So actually some manuscripts say, um, I can't remember the exact wording, but, but, you know, Paul's letter to the Romans through Phoebe, through Phoebe, hmm. uh, or, or, um, you know, they add Phoebe somehow into it. And what they're trying to say there is she's the letter carrier. Is it Dia, Dia Phoebe? I, I'm not hundred percent. I'd have to look it up, okay. but, but something like that. And, you know, that means they kind of take it for granted. And even later on, I think I mentioned John Calvin says this as well. He just takes it for granted. Now, a big part of my book is not just the activities, but what they mean in context. Mm -hmm. So when the Amazon person delivers a package to my house, I don't ever even see that person. Uh, you know, they just drop it and ring the doorbell and leave. Sometimes they knock. And I'll, I'll go to the door, open it, and I'll yell, thank you. <laughs> they may be at their car. <laughs> you know, they may be back at their truck and I'm yelling, thank you. You know, I don't have a relationship with this, you know, delivery person. But in the ancient world, um, if it wasn't kind of government mail, which went through kind of official channels, if it was private mail, you had to either hire somebody, which we don't think the early Christians did, or send it through a slave which I hope they didn't do, but they probably did, or send it through a friend. And if you sent it through a trusted friend, one thing we learn about these letter carriers, Drew, is they were really important. They were often traveling long distances. It, it was dangerous. Think about Epaphroditus from Philippians who almost died. It's dangerous. These documents were really important to the early Christians, right? Think about Romans, how important it is, right? You don't want to, oops, I lost it on the way. Or I dropped it in the puddle. Like you don't want that. You know, they may have been sealed. So you really had to put a lot of trust in this person. And so you're sending this person there. What we learn from scholars like Peter Head and others who have studied letter carriers 
is they were basically an agent of the sender. They were, I refer to as a proxy. Mm -hmm. And so just think about Phoebe. You know, some people think she read the letter. Some people think she didn't. Whatever the case, I think the more important thing is if the people listening are upset or have questions, who are they going to talk to? They're going to talk to Phoebe because she's eventually going back there. And they're like, mm. you know, you tell Paul, I don't like this part, right? They're going to say that to her. So she's negotiating on behalf of Paul. She's kind of being invested with some of his apostolic power. I think that's one of the reasons that her church title is Diakonos is named. Yeah, and I, I, even the the presumption that she probably spent some time with Paul on the front end and could answer some questions that might arise in that context. And again, if it's a Jewish room that she's reading this letter to or whoever's reading the letter to, um, well, everything I know about ancient Judaism suggests that there's going to be some pushback. <laughs> Absolutely. Some I mean, vigorous discussion. He starts out by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which implies he's kind of being a little bit defensive here. He has some hard words. He says, and I think towards the end of the letter, I'm being bold to say these things to you. You know, he says, watch out for these things. Watch out for these people. So he's saying, and he says, I haven't been there before. So, you know, Phoebe right. is in many ways the face of Paul. Uh, to these people. And, you know, Drew, a lot of people don't think about when Paul's writing this, he's in Corinth or Cancrea, which are neighboring towns. And he has a lot of male friends in Corinth. Um, many of them leaders, Stephanus, Achaeus, Gaius. He knows a lot of people there. He could have sent, if he wanted to send a letter with a man, he could have. If he wanted to send a letter with a male leader, he had a lot of them to choose from. And so the choice of Phoebe seems to be strategic for a yeah. variety of reasons. Uh, uh, it, it wasn't just like, hey, you're you're heading towards Rome. Why don't you take this letter with you, right? I think that's an older perspective. And I think now that we've learned more about letter carriers um, and more about diaconoid, you know, diaconos, what that means, I think we're in a better position to say this was more of a strategic decision rather than you happen to already have a bus ticket. Can you drop this off on your way? Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it too on the on the receiving side. Uh, Brian Wright's book, uh, Communal Reading in the Time of Jesus, uh, is a great little text on what happens when it enters that crowd as well, and that that would have been a pretty vigorous discussion going on um, in in the receiving church. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, that was very helpful. And uh, you identified three myths. I. I have to admit, maybe it's just uh, the, the lazy scholar in me. I love listicles now from experts, <laughs> not list, not just general list, listicles, but when somebody actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah. And I've, I've heard Lynn Kohick talk about this a little bit as well. Uh, but the three ones you identify were that wives were always under the legal authority of their husbands, that women couldn't own property, and that women lived privately in, in the home, kind of like they couldn't let the sun dawn on their face in the street kind of idea. Um, and you say, no, that's not that's not exactly what's going on. Uh, those are caricatures that have some basis in reality, but not entirely true. Um, I guess the question is, why is this important for the grander argument that you're making about how women were actually functioning in Roman society? Yeah, you know, I I think that you know the the theological world that I kind of entered when I became a Christian, you know, in the late '90s, was largely influenced by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I read Grudem's Systematic Theology in college. I once drove 16 hours uh, to listen to John Piper speak. Um, You know, I was really all in on that. And when you read their work, I feel like what they're nostalgic for 
is a 1950s, 1960s, leave it to beaver uh, form of marriage and gender roles. Um, so when they talk about gender roles, um, and it's fascinating to track when the language of gender roles entered mm-hmm. you know, the discourse, which is kind of in that period. Um, what I notice as I've been, you know, what I try to do in my book is do a reset by focusing as much as I can on dialogue with Roman historians, modern Roman historians, classic scholars, to get the best picture possible of what life was actually like for men and women in the ancient world and specifically in the Roman world, which was kind of innovation. Many things that happened in the Roman world didn't happen in the Greek world before or in other cultures. And we can go on and on and on about that. And I can give lots of examples, but uh, marriage in the household is interesting. You know, just to take one important cultural phenomenon today, the, the go home fiasco with, with Beth Moore, so, you know, I'm sure listeners remember that John MacArthur, when he was asked about two words that, that come to mind with Beth Moore, he said, go home. And that is kind of uh, encapsulation of this, um, you know, Council of Biblical Woodenhood mentality that a woman's place is in the home, a man's place is at work or in the church. Um, and what I wanted to do was really mess with that and complicate mm-hmm. that. So, for example, there's a scholar who won't be mentioned, but I mentioned him in the book. There's a scholar that talks about Priscilla and Aquila and how when Priscilla and Aquila teach Apollos the more thorough knowledge he needs as an evangelist and teacher, uh, one scholar says, oh, by taking them, by taking him to their home, um, that takes it out of the ministry context and it places it more in a private, non-official setting. And what I said, and and only once in the book do I get kind of salty and acerbic in my response to another scholar. And that's the time, and I'm glad that my editor didn't take it out, although maybe I should have. But um, what I basically say is that is a profound misunderstanding of how homes operate in the ancient world. So for example, Drew, we're looking at each other right now. I don't know if listeners know that. And you can see into my house. Um, So this is interesting because it's my private setting. You know, I have a bunch of dirty clothes on the ground you can't see. Um, and it's a public setting because I use this space publicly for teaching and for podcasts and other things. And and, and Roman houses played that function where they were used for uh, sleeping and changing and bathing, but they were also used for business and work. They were used for public uh, settings like parties, social engagements, Someone who came to your house, you know, like a beggar looking for hospitality could step into a semi-public space to make those requests. Um, even more, even more public than our porches, mm-hmm. uh, modern porches. So this idea that Priscilla and Aquila go to their house. And what I asked this, you know, a- other academic is where else are they going to take him? There were no churches. Right. Um, also, one scholar that I work with a lot, a Roman scholar, her name is Emily Hemelrick. She doesn't engage in biblical stuff, but she does point out that people kept their libraries in their homes. Hmm. And so if they wanted to discuss things in depth and they want to open up, you know, their their texts, they're going to go to a home because that's where you kept those things. You might keep them sometimes in a business place, but their business place may have also been their home. Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to clear up a lot of these misunderstandings that come from uh, what I call a snow globe understanding Hmm. of the ancient world, you know, a snow globe of New York city is going to have these staples, but it's not going to reflect real New York city. 
and a snow globe of the Roman world is going to have these, you know, assumptions, which doesn't reflect the reality. What I want to do is explicate the reality. Yeah. And even uh, a snow globe of New York City is going to have Times Square, Empire State Building, uh, maybe the World Trade Center, uh, Center, which is where New Yorkers, New Yorkers don't go, right? Those That's are right. the <laughs> tourist places, right? Um, yeah. So this kind of on-the-ground reality, which I thought was just so helpful. And that's part of what our other book was trying to do is get people back in, back into the, the homesteads and Iron Age and Greco-Roman world and see what people's lives were actually like. And there were things that were divided up gender-wise, but it was it's not necessarily exactly why you think or how you think uh, that is the case. Um, Okay, uh, so we're going to do a speed round in a second, but last question before we get there, because I got to the end of the book proper, and I thought, like, wait, he didn't deal with any of the hotly contested text, and then I flipped the page, and it's, and here are what the about? hotly contested. <laughs> it was <laughs> the most perfectly, uh, the perfectly timed things, right? Um, which shows you I didn't read the table of contents when I started in the book. Um, so You were just we too should, excited. I was. I, 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 that's true. I just wanted to get straight into it. Um, so maybe we should just let people read that section for themselves. But I do think, you know, just to give one on the table, because I know everybody's going to go straight to the issue of First Timothy, right? I do not let a woman speak. Um, can you just talk really quickly so that you don't, and not not too much of a spoiler there, but really quickly about how understanding the use of authentio, or authentio uh, in that context uh, really does make a difference in how you understand the text. Yeah, L- let me say a couple things. Let me say kind of a preface statement first, um, because any anytime I, you know, almost anytime I post on, you know, my support of women in ministry on social media, I'll get somebody just post First Timothy two, you know, as kind of a mic drop. And I'm going to just start replying to everything you do with with First Timothy two. That, that just... is kind of a yeah. Um, there needs to be some First Timothy two emoji just to simplify <laughs> it for people. But um, you know what I've thought about more recent days, just in the last week or two, is the reality that scholars are trying to integrate disparate pieces of information. So it's kind of like, this is the first time I'm explaining this way, Drew, so I hope this is exciting. It's kind of like investigating a crime scene. Mm. Uh, You may come across contradictory evidence, right? Um, Someone's alibi doesn't work out uh, or they're lying, but then you have this, you know, stain on the carpet or, you know, all this stuff. and, And you have to construct a plausible theory that tries to make sense of everything while still recognizing that some things may still not make sense. And I, 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 and the problem with the way that a lot of people approach this is they just look at one text and they say, this text says everything I need to know. And the whole point of my book is to say, when you have so many women out there doing public ministry on the front lines, going to prison, teaching people like Apollos, right? You have the patristic testimony about all of this stuff. You can't just ignore that. Um, And so you have to actually find a way to integrate this material. So then the question is, do I start with 1 Timothy and then place everything else subordinate to that? Do I start with these named women and, you know, or do I do something else? So just starting there, we have to say, this is more complex than I've settled my view in First Timothy. Therefore, women can't be elders or pastors. End of story. I, that's just not the way it works. We have to try to integrate all the information. Okay. 
Um, one of the things that's helped me is to start with something very simple that Nick, I learned from Nicholas Waltersdorf, and that is uh, we have to rely on the clearest texts on any issue in Scripture. And I've had so many people say, First Timothy 2 is so clear. And what mm. I say is it's clear in English, but not in Greek. Now, I'm not trying to pull some kind of magic trick by saying that. Um, I don't know if you know this, Drew, but um, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, there's a word in there uh, that we have absolutely no idea what it means. It's epiusias. And we translate it daily. But if you open up a commentary, you open up patristic discussions, we actually don't know what this word means. So this is, hmm. Lord's Prayer is the most cited, most repeated, most memorized, most discussed text in all of literature. And there's a word that we actually don't know what it means. So that's actually real. That's a real problem that sometimes we don't know what words mean or we're guessing. And that doesn't happen very often in the New Testament. Right. Uh, based on frequency, based on patristic usage, based on other things, context, we can figure out what words mean. There's a word here at the actual center of this text. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. We actually don't know what it, really what it means or it's highly debated. So it's this word authentic, which you've already mentioned, and sometimes it's translated have authority. Um, that's kind of a guess because what we're what we're depending on is word frequency, right? When I want to buy a product like a vacuum or you know a Christmas tree or whatever, um, a fake Christmas tree, uh, I have to go. I go on Amazon or wherever, and I look at a bunch of reviews. The more reviews, the the better chance I have at knowing how good this thing is. It's kind of that way with semantics, right? Lexico-semantics, understanding what words mean in the New Testament. We depend on lots of uses. The more uses, the better. So we want, ideally, we want thousands. If we can't, in, in all of Greek literature. And, it's, and in, if we can get that in the New Testament, that's great. Uh, if not, hundreds. If not, many dozens. With this one, um, we've only been able to find about eight to 10 uses of this word within kind of that time period. Now compare that to another word for authority like exousia, which is very common in the New Testament. We have that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Oh, in the Gospels, that, that's authority over men and Paul. This is basically the, the main word that's used throughout. The, the key word. So you have to ask yourself not only what the word means, because we're not really sure, but why would Paul use a rare word? Rare words usually indicate unusual circumstances, right? There's a debate, and I don't know how deep you want to go, but whether the word means to have authority in a neutral sense or in a positive sense, or to domineer over somebody or to usurp authority or to abuse with authority in a negative sense. Um, so one thing I, a question I raise in this chapter that I have is, um, if this is a common teaching of Paul, uh, this is what he tells all his churches. This is just what he believes about men and women in the church. Number one, why is this the only time he says it? Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't use this in first Corinthians 11. He doesn't use it in first Corinthians 14. He doesn't use it in the submission passages of the Colossians and Ephesians. It doesn't appear in first Peter's household text. So why is it not there? Secondly, why would you use a rare word when any of us, when we use a rare word, could be misunderstood? So I'm problematizing that. Again, scholars work with theories, right? So I have to create a theory then to explain this. So my theory is 
Uh, I lean in favor of scholars like Cindy Westfall who say it's actually not women wanting equal power with men, but women actually wanting to usurp authority or domineer over men. And Paul is basically saying, no, we're not going to allow that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a theory, but I think it's a theory that can explain a lot of things in the text. Uh, would you see that as having some transference power with explaining 1 Corinthians and the head coverings so that there might be something also going on there along the same lines? Yeah. You know, it's interesting to me that we have a number of texts throughout the New Testament that deal with kind of clash of the sexes or class mm-hmm. of gender. I don't know exactly why, and there's all kinds of reasons this could be kind of culturally but I do think something in terms of gender disrespect is going on in First Corinthians 11. I've gone over that. I've sat down so many times, Drew, and said, I'm going to read the Greek right. text and I'm going to solve gonna see what this it problem. Says. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, and every time I come up with goose egg, yeah, I yeah. Have, there's so much in here that doesn't make sense. So just let's take the headship language, head over, head over, head over. Doesn't mean authority. Doesn't mean a source. I, I, I don't know. Like it, it, it it it's can't it can't be exactly what Paul thinks because he doesn't see a cascading head where Christ is only the head over men and right. then men is the head over woman. Why why do we know that? Because there are so many widows out there. I just read recently a statistic there that maybe one out of every four adult women was a, were widows. Hmm. Um, so you have lots of widows out there who don't have you know a, a you know pater familias a husband to rely on. So what what are they going to do? Is this a marriage thing? And and if it is a marriage thing, then sh- and, and all of a sudden we're allowing unmarried women to be pastors and elders and bishops. Um, how can we explain that from a capability standpoint or cultural standpoint? So um, I think there are these issues. We don't know exactly what's going on. I think ultimately what Par wants is harmony and respect. Um, yeah. We, we can have more conversation about that, but that's kind of the, the clearest thing I think we can land on. Yeah, that's good. And I it's I mean, a lot of what you're saying is basically we just need to norm the data in context, right? Um, it, this does kind of remind me of um, Kevin Rose, you know, the the uh, his argument that there's this kind of – it's in a different format, but this encyclopedist – bent uh to, but i find that in the church there is this kind of like each data point in scripture is equal to every other data point in scripture um so if, if you know jesus said my big one is jesus says there's no marriage in heavens i'm like then, then there's no marriage in heavens and i'm kind of the same thing like wait he's not wait wait time out <laughs> marriage is a, a covenant of as part of the covenant of creation uh, this is the only place he says it. This phrase only occurs in, in judgment text uh, of the eschaton. Like, what's going on here? Um, which, again, that that move to norm the data, I think I find a lot of people are resistant to it. Oh, this is my observation. You tell me what you think. Only when they already have a prior strong belief about the thing that they don't want to norm the data about, right? Um, well, I start out my book by using the kind of focusing focal image of the the book and movie hidden figures. Mm. And I do that because that's kind of what happened to me. That's part of my story where, you know, the, the hidden figures is about these uh, African-American women uh, who were quote unquote computers. They're analysts and scientists uh, who were kind of behind, you know, kind of space achievements. Um, but their stories were were hidden. And so we write textbooks and we we make movies about kind of the Neil Armstrongs, the Buzz Aldrins, 
and and the achievements of these women are kind of buried in history and only to be revealed later. And now they're renaming buildings after these women. Uh, a lot of it is paradigmatic. So my students, I teach a course on women in the New Testament. I've taught it tw- uh, twice. I'm going to teach again next year. And students are often angry, they're crying, they're confused, and they say, why am I only hearing mm. these stories for the first time? Nympha, Euodia, Syntyche, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Mary, right? The mother of Nereus, um, Persis. Why, why am I only hearing about these people now? You know, Mary Magdalene was a real, uh, you know, was was apostle to the apostles, you know? And the only answer I can give to them is, for better or for worse, our preachers and teachers have framed scripture in a certain way. And we need to to check those frames, make sure they're legitimate, make sure they're accurate, make sure they're, that we've, we see what, what culture may have hidden. Hmm. And, um, uh, I, you know, I think we've done that and, and I think there needs to be recovery there, uh, you know, so I love the title. The title actually comes from a, a, a great IVP team, but tell her story, um, you know, one of the echoes of that title is, I think, Hamilton's Who Lives, Who Dies, Who Tells, you know, Your Story about Hamilton's wife, right? Who who mm-hmm. is kind of a lesser known figure, but but really important. I think that's what we're trying to do. It's, it's you know, I, I try to say in my introduction, because people are going to think what I'm doing is revisionist. And I make it clear, I'm not being revisionist. It's an exercise in amplification. Hmm. We want to understand better these figures in their own world. And when we see that, we see, gosh, if we say women can't be elders because um, their places in the home or they're not good enough at leadership, um, you know, I have this conversation with students a lot. I say, one of the really crazy things about the gospels is the fact that, that in Jesus's, let's say, teenage and 20s, he doesn't have a male uh, mentor in his life. So you would know this just from knowing the ancient world, you know, fathers die, but then an uncle steps in or a grandparent or a neighbor. <laughs> you know what I mean? The fact that Jesus is just hanging out with his mom is kind of strange in mm-hmm. the ancient world. It's, it's a bit of an anomaly. Um, and so this idea that in some of Jesus's most formative years of coming of age, God gives him this woman, Mary, you know, what we think of as kind of lower class, blue collar, um, as his primary formative mentor places a lot yeah. <laughs> of, 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 of weight on her shoulders. I mean, right up until the very end of his life, who shows up at the cross? It's not uncle Frank. You know right. <laughs> we don't hear yeah, about any women, uncles. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. We don't hear about these kind of surrogate uh, fathers, we hear about Mary and just, you know, I'm, I've been appreciative of these books in recent years, like Amy Peeler's book, Women, the Gender of God, mm-hmm. that have really said, you know, we need to take Mary more seriously, not, you know, not as a divine figure, you know, not as, uh, you know, for Protestants, not as necessarily a saint, but um, God, God putting a, a ton. <laughs> I, I hate to use the word risk because it makes it seem like God's not in control. I'm more comfortable with that, but I understand it makes people really nervous. But this idea that this is part of the plan that, you know, hey, if Mary can raise the Savior, I think my wife could do a pretty good job as an elder. Yeah. Mary, it's not that she's because I I can imagine some people would just say, well, yes, but she's his mother. Of course, she has to. That's her job. We're like, well, the father, he has to. That's his job. Whatever happens to him, we don't know. 
but also the you know at least Luke's gospel is very particular. She she is paying attention and sees what's going on. I mean, she is the yeah. Hannah of the first century that seems to understand the big picture, and totally. maybe the only one that understands the big picture uh, throughout Jesus's actual life and ministry. Um, okay, I'm going to change the the beat a little bit here. To we're going to do a speed round. Um, and I'm going to ask you some stock and not-so-stock questions. But the, the first stock question is, uh, what biblical theological work has influenced you most as a thinker? And we'll say on gender. On gender. On gender. Okay. Um, I would say the book Discovering Biblical Equality, which came out right around when I was in seminary. Um, massive book just, just dropped like a bomb. Uh, it was the kind of the 800-page response to the Piper Grudem tome um, and uh, Gordon Fee, Craig Keener, Linda Belleville. I mean, you had these kind of big names, I think maybe Ben Witherington as well, and you know, just kind of brought an evangelical voice to the conversation that made it more approachable for me as someone with high commitment to scripture and, and kind of uh, mainstream Christianity um, so that that is one I continue to turn to a lot. Nice. In uh, three to five words, this is going to be tricky for you, but three to five words, what's the biggest problem with Matt Bates Pistis as a legion's view? Ooh, okay. Matt, Matt doesn't actually, he doesn't before. listen to the podcast, so he you does. can say whatever you want. <laughs> He'll never know. Um, I would say not nuanced enough. Ooh, dang. But that's a normal problem with short books. Yeah, I'm okay true. with that. Yeah, popular engagement books. Yeah. Uh, which skit in Portlandia hits the most different for you? Which one is the one that really you think nails it? It's a lot to choose <laughs> since we're from. Being, since we're being goofy, um, you know, there's this great episode where these people go to a raw foods uh, restaurant for the first time and they have farting and non-farting sections. <laughs> um, and I it's just, seen that one. Not only is that, you know, realistic to Portland, but I've been on all sorts of, you know, hippie diets and and that I can I can without giving away too much I can attest right. that having those sections makes sense. <laughs> uh thought, well, yeah, now I want to ask what's your like what's the second place one? Um there's one that I remember that's like bicycle rights, you know, this guy's like into bicycle rights cuz he's a bike delivery person and then he ends up getting a car and then he gets mad at the bicycle rights people. There is a big <laughs> war in Portland over uh you know bicyclists versus drivers and there's snobbiness now you have electric bicycles and, you know, all kinds of stuff. So I would say just the snob level uh, of hippiness is um, is yeah. very accurate in Portlandia. I heard an interview with them um, and apparently the bookstore that shows up in a lot, the feminist bookstore that shows up in a lot of scenes is an actual feminist bookstore. I think it is. Yeah. And the, and the women is. who own the feminist bookstore did not know what they were, their stores being rented out to film <laughs> until they saw it on the show. So. Well, one, one, I know one of your good friends, Carmen Imes, she was here in Portland, you know, over the summer, I think. And we met her at a at, at a restaurant uh, on the east side. And uh, as we were walking in, we saw Carrie Brownstein drive around oh, the corner. So there you go. Exciting. It's your own little uh, New York City there. Um, what is one of the most awkward things that's ever happened to you in class? Now, you teach a lot of classes remote. Uh, or some I do. classes remote. Uh, so it, it could be a remote issue or it could be an yeah. in-class thing. I mean, I don't know. I, 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 do, do you teach online too? 
Uh, I did for the last two years, but thank goodness, no. Um, I would say, and I don't, I'm not bothered by this, but I can see how people would be like people in their pajamas. (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, it's late at night in some places, um, people in bed, um, people eating. Mm. Um, gets kind of awkward, especially if they're at the, like the dinner table or something. Um, <laughs> Wait, I would say probably during the, class you've had people at the dinner table. <laughs> I mean everything. This is okay. just life, right? Okay. Um, I would say the thing I would like the least would be when someone's in the car and they're and they're um zooming yes. with their phone, yes. and I, I just like what liability do I have if they get into an accident? <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I'm like, turn your camera like, off. I can't call nine one one. I don't, I don't, I don't know where know. you're at. <laughs> Like if they're in a parking lot pulled over, fine. Yeah. But if they're driving like that, that scares the bejeebus out of me. You know, you should have a clause. If I if I teach remote again, I'm gonna have a clause that says if you're if you're driving, then you need to like put me on find my friends so I know exactly where you're at. Yeah. So in case you wreck, I know who which police department. I don't know. To call. I want I want plausible to my ability. That's true. Too, that's so. true. Um do you believe in aliens? Extraterrestrial aliens. Um I would say no. I would say if if they did exist, we would have found them by now. Okay. Or they would have found us. This is a Matt Bates question. But again, because he never listens to this podcast (laughs) that he started, we can say whatever we want. Are are you familiar with the Tic Tac vehicle? No. In recent? Oh, okay. Well, it's a recent recent alien phenomenon. I'm not a big fan of aliens either. Um, But uh, I mean, the idea that there are aliens... Uh, mainly because I feel like Jesus came in human form, and then you have this other issue of like, does he come in other forms? And... I mean, if you remember the Larry Larry Norman song, you know, from I, the I don't 70s. know any Larry Norman song. So you, you don't know Larry Norman? Uh, no, but I I know a guy who wrote the wrote that. There's a song called UFO. He's an unidentified flying <laughs> object. It's a good so song. So <laughs> you were raised in Christian culture. Uh, I. No, my parents are Hindu, so not exactly. I, I, you know, I I became a Christian in high school, but I went pretty, I went pretty deep into CCM, okay. Christian music. You did a deep um, dive. I went. Okay. I, I grew up in you know a small town Midwest, and so like every station on the radio is Christian ah, or country, okay. Okay. which is also considered Christian. Um, and so yeah, I got both kinds of music: Christian and country. Christian um, and the other Christian. Yeah. Okay. So I have, I went on New Yorker magazine. They had a, a webpage devoted to feminist knock knock jokes. Uh, Ooh, some that okay. I probably could not repeat on this uh, podcast, but I'll give you a couple and uh, see if you can play yeah. along here. So knock knock. Who's there? Impatient feminist. Impatient feminist. Why don't too? we have equal pay yet? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that made it onto the New Yorker magazine. Uh, right. Knock knock. Who's there? Annie. Annie who? Anything you can do so that I can get 58 cents on the dollar. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these are. Clever. These are, yeah. <laughs> I was a little disappointed, to tell you the truth. This these, isn't representing feminism that well. Oh, that's what I thought, too. And uh, I don't think women wrote these jokes. Yeah. Uh, that's a good point. It probably could be. But uh, I wonder if uh, some people just see what you're doing uh, as kind of exhibit A of caving in to woke culture and just kind of giving people what they want rather than what scripture says. What like what's your throwback on that? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this because I've been in dialogue with um, a few scholars on social media about, you know, are egalitarians like myself deluded? Are we bending scripture? Are we manipulating, you know, all this stuff? You know, 
I'm going to get a little bit theoretical here, which I know you love. Um, but, you know, uh, scholarship is dialectic in the sense that um, you want to be as objective as possible. At the same time, you're a human being with cultural experiences. At the same time, you try to have your work peer reviewed. At the same time, your peer review is going to be in favor of you in many cases. At this, so there's this dialectic. There's this back. There's this constant ping pong, going back and forth between, on the one hand, the desire for objectivity, neutrality, and at the same time, what we write comes out of our passions. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't ask third party neutral people to write impassioned books on these subjects because for the fact they're not interested in it. So then the question is, so then I would rely on a couple of things. One is, you know, I, I asked for peer review of my book, you know, internally from IVP. I asked them to give me, you know, as much direct, you know, feedback as I can and incorporate that and all of that. I know that's limited, but that's important. You know, second thing is, and and you could tell me if this is illegitimate or not, Drew, but I would say credibility if I wrote this 10 years ago before I wrote anything else, I think it'd be pretty easy to say, what does this guy know? Mm-hmm. Um, I hope having written biblical commentaries, you know, work on translation committee, the credentials I have, you know, the work I've done on scripture, I'm putting my reputation on the line for this in the sense that um I'm willing to take a stand, having been in the business for a long time, having developed friendships across the spectrum of scholars and scholarship. So I think there needs to, you know, this this kind of happened, for example, John Stott, when he, you know, kind of vocalized his view of annihilationism, this mm-hmm. idea that he doesn't believe in eternal conscious torment as hell. Um, I think that people that opened the pathway for people to think about that more because it's John Stott mm-hmm. um, versus just some conspiracy theorist on the internet saying, Hey, this is true. Um, I think who you are should be taken into consideration. Is this person known for reliable, in-depth scholarship that's careful, genuine, um, engaging across the spectrum what I didn't want the book to do was just pad the footnotes with egalitarian scholars. You notice I, I don't do that very much. Right. right. Uh, I try to engage as much with uh, real historical texts from the Roman world and Roman historians that would be neutral uh, or ignorant of uh, our theological conversation. So, so I, I would hope that people I would get a hearing. There's actually been one review posted. Uh, the very first review posted was on something called NetGalley, which kind of allows people to see books ahead of time for review mm-hmm. purposes. And it was actually by, um, I think, a Southern Baptist. And he said in his review, um, I disagreed with some of the major conclusions of the book related to women as elders and pastors, but I learned a lot from the book. And I have, I'm have i inspired by the women who contributed in great ways to the gospel, something like that. Like... I appreciate that. I appreciate right. that they're able to say, I, I, by the end of the book, I didn't agree with X, Y, and Z, but I learned a lot from the book. Like that to me is, I, I'm proud of that, that, that people could come to those, even those kinds of conclusions, having not agreed with some of my big ideas. Yeah. It's, it's every book you look for small and big wins, right? Some, That's right. Yeah. 
So that's great. Um, we just got back from SBL, Society for Biblical Literature meeting. Um, what is a, just a good memory you have from from that? And and don't say conversations. <laughs> conversations <laughs> with friends. <laughs> no, um, I want to plug the Institute for Biblical Research, oh, which yeah, is yeah. Uh, you know a, a society of you know five five hundred to a thousand scholars. Uh, you know, I, I hesitate to use evangelical, even though that's convenient, but they're confessional scholars, um, who teach at a lot of Christian colleges and universities and seminaries. And they have really, um, grown over the years into, um, supporting certain, uh, constituencies, which didn't exist when I was a student. So for example, they have a breakfast for women scholars. They have a special breakfast for minority scholars, and they have a special coffee hour for students, especially PhD students. And I, um, I was able to, I was invited to speak in that group, the student group, and just to see the support in the room, to see scholars there supporting students. Like Drew, I didn't have this as a student. Right. It didn't mean I was on my own. I had a great cohort of other students, but to have intentional mentoring uh, scenarios. To have scholars like myself speak on what I wish I, they asked me like what I wish, what I wish I knew when I was a PhD mm-hmm. student. And there's a lot. <laughs> um, like I would have loved to have that. And I'm so happy that, and this is a student led initiative. I'm so happy they're doing that. So that, that was probably my favorite memory, you know, that coffee hour, just to see this group of people in this room uh, who felt supported. Like that's a, that's really important. Yeah. I feel like, uh, SBL, it's not a toxic place, but there's sectors of SBL that can, the tension is high in the room. Like you can cut it, you know, and there's just little cat fights and stuff like that. Not everywhere, but there's definitely places where that's true. And I feel like IBR tends to be a little bit more of a respite. Uh, and you still get good research, uh, good, good vigorous dialogue and debate uh, in those sessions as well. I have to say also a thanks to you because you are that kind of person to me. Uh, you were right. I don't know how many people know this, but you and has been Blackwell, right? You, you guys used to write. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's right. On blog blogs back in the day when people blogged, uh, macro blogged rather than micro blogged, uh, and you wrote all the stuff about what it's like to do a PhD in the UK. And mm-hmm. I accidentally stumbled into a PhD program in the UK, but uh, immediately needed to know everything I could, and so I, yeah. I read everything you wrote for you know about six months. Uh, and it was extremely helpful to me and my wife, even things like how to open a bank account in the UK, uh, <laughs> which uh, so it was a great service of supporting fellow scholars. And you've written books since then, helping people who are entering scholarship mm-hmm. to to think about what it means and how it works and to bring them into this alien landscape of biblical scholarship. So thank you very much uh, for your wisdom and your service to the community over the years. And thank you for being on Nonscript for the third time. Well, I, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm a listener. I, you know, in the evenings after the kids go to bed, I play video games and I'll put on Onscript or another podcast and try to learn something uh, while I'm kind of vegging out. So it's, it's kind of one of my go-to. So I appreciate your ministry as well. All right. Peace to you. And thank you all very much for listening. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate. Slash